the Bible say about the future, and why does it matter? Today we'll get a bird's eye view of a few coming events that the Bible speaks about on The Bible Brief. By one count, of all the Bible's words, prophecy makes up about 27%. Yes, 27%. That's more than one quarter of the Bible. Apparently, God, the author of the Bible through human writers, apparently he thinks prophecy is important. We make that observation because a lot of people think that biblical prophecy is a nice-to-have, but not a necessary-to-have. Sure, it would be great to know what was going to happen in the future if we really could know, but we just can't. Bible prophecy is just too confusing. Well, listener, if you feel like that, let me encourage you. Prophecy can be understood, and perhaps more importantly, prophecy can be applied to your life. Now, that doesn't mean that it's not challenging. And it doesn't mean that we can understand every detail and future event when the Bible prophecies concern the future. Instead, it means that we can, at very least, have a general understanding about the future that the Bible paints, and that we can apply that understanding to our lives today. If someone told you today that in seven days you would lose your eyesight, would you live the next seven days differently than the prior week? Would you maybe prepare for the loss of your eyesight? Would you begin learning about how to navigate the world without seeing the world? Would you spend hours just looking at your family to etch their faces in your memory? I think you would. The sureness of the future affected every moment of the present. And when the Bible prophecies are about future events, we should expect the same effect. Knowing about the future will affect how we live in the present. With all that said, let's dig into what some of the Bible has to say about the future. And in order to do that, we're going to actually look backward before we look forward. We're going to go back to the Garden of Eden, back to the consequences of eating the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Do you remember what God said about eating from that tree when he was warning Adam? He said this, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God was announcing a consequence of Adam's sin that would come to affect all of those that came after him. God was announcing the consequence of death, essentially saying, if you sin, then you will die. Now you probably remember this, but in those beginning episodes of this jog through, we talked a bit more about death in order to define it. We said that this death is separation and that the death penalty is actually twofold, spiritual death and physical death. Spiritual death being the separation of each human's spirit from God, and physical death being separation of each human's spirit from his body. Two separations, two deaths. Adam and Eve experienced spiritual death the day that they ate of the fruit from that tree, and they experienced physical death being separated from the tree of life. Remember that other tree in the garden that apparently gave them continued physical life. Now you may be saying to yourself, okay, thanks for the review, but what does this have to do with biblical prophecy? Well, the answer is this. Death gets undone by resurrection. And resurrection is thematic for this final period of earth that we're discussing in biblical prophecy. So let's get into it. The first resurrection to eternal life.
The first resurrection to eternal life was the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus changed the world because it confirmed a hope that is expressed throughout the whole Bible. It confirmed the availability of eternal life. Death could lose its sting. And for believers in Jesus, life would have the last word. But let's think about Jesus' resurrection in the context of death. Let's first note three things about Jesus' death. First, Jesus died as a substitute. He took the death penalty that sinners deserve and experienced it himself, despite not deserving it because he was not a sinner. Second, because Jesus took the death penalty, he experienced both physical death and spiritual death. Again, physical death being separation of the body from the spirit, and spiritual death being the separation of the spirit from God. While the evidence of his physical death is obvious, it may help to know that Jesus himself testifies of his experience of spiritual death on the cross. He actually cries out about the fact that he is separated from and forsaken by God the Father. Finally, third, Jesus' experience of the death penalty and resurrecting from it confirms that other humans can and will too. Just as Jesus resurrected physically in a new body, so all other humans will resurrect physically in a new body. Just as Jesus was restored to fellowship with God the Father after suffering on the cross, so believers are restored a relationship to God the Father as well. This is perhaps the most critical concept for continuing on in the Bible story. Resurrection is not just a past event where Jesus resurrected. It's also a future event for every person. Bodily resurrection and bodily existence are the future for humanity, not a sort of cloud-like existence that you might get from a movie or something. The future for humans is a future in bodies. That said, for believers there is one future in the body, and for those who don't believe, there is a different future in the body. We'll get to both of these. Okay, now we said that the first resurrection to eternal life was the resurrection of Jesus. But here's where we get into the future part of things. There are going to be more resurrections that are part of this quote-unquote first resurrection. In fact, Jesus himself is identified as the first of many resurrections in this first resurrection era. In one of the letters of the Apostle Paul, we read that Jesus is the first fruits, or the beginning of the harvest, of the first resurrection. The picture here is of a big field of wheat that's ready to be harvested. And once you've done a little portion of that field and look at the resulting harvested wheat, you'd be looking at the first fruits of the harvest. It's all part of the same harvest, but the first fruits are just the first part. It's just like that with the first resurrection. Jesus is the first part, and then later, in the same passage, the Apostle Paul identifies the rest of the harvest as those who belong to Jesus. And those believers in Jesus, the ones who belong to him, will be bodily resurrected from the dead at his coming. Elsewhere, we find out a bit more about this moment, this moment of bodily resurrection for believers. Listen to this as Paul encourages people in the church with these words. For we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have already died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven, 
and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Now a quick paraphrase of that. Jesus rose and is in heaven, but when he comes back, those believers who are physically dead will be resurrected, where their spirits which have been in heaven with God are rejoined to their physical bodies. And then those who remain alive will join them in the air. And then Paul says this elsewhere about this event. He says, For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Not only is there resurrection at this event, but there is putting on of new, imperishable, immortal bodies. Bodies built for eternity. Bodies not built for this age, but built for the coming age. This event that we have been describing is commonly called the rapture of the church. And the rapture of the church is the next event on God's calendar. The thing that Christians can look forward to. The quote-unquote first resurrection will largely be complete with this rapture when Jesus appears in the clouds for a moment and takes believers to be with him in heaven in their new bodies. But what happens on earth after that? What happens to the people who are not believers? Well, in short, trouble. After the rapture of the church, the next significant event that we see in biblical prophecy is called the tribulation, or the time of trouble. This is a period of time where the church has been taken into heaven, while the earth experiences worldwide calamity, where the wrath of God is poured out on the earth for a period of seven years. There are significant details that we're able to understand about this period, and we find those in the bulk of the middle of the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible. Within this seven years, there are three rounds of significant calamities that occur. A good way to think about these is like worldwide plagues like the plagues that God put upon Egypt before the great miraculous exodus of the nation of Israel way back in the beginning of the Bible. Think massive hailstones, locusts, wars, earthquakes, mass casualty events. It's not going to be a good time for planet Earth. And yet, in the midst of this awful event of God's wrath, we also see His grace continuing to be poured out. There are people who come to faith in Jesus even in the midst of this period of time, especially believers from within the Jewish or Israelite nation. The Bible actually identifies that there will be well over a hundred thousand of these Israelites that God miraculously preserves through all of these calamities. And not only does He preserve them, but He uses them to continue to spread the gospel in the world. And many, many more people come to faith in Jesus. But just as now, there is resistance to God and the gospel. Just as the serpent deceived Adam and Eve in the garden, so he, Satan, works through various sources to consolidate power on earth in the tribulation time period, and he persecutes those who come to faith in Jesus during this time. Satan reconstitutes a final version of the Roman Empire and ultimately ushers in an unprecedented era of rebellion against God by the powers of the earth. 
While God's wrath is being poured out in judgments on the earth, Satan attempts to use the confusion and instability of the calamities as a means to continue his deceitful schemes against humanity and against God. But eventually, this seven-year period of time called the tribulation does come to an end. Ultimately, Jesus returns to earth from heaven to defeat the armies of Satan in the final battle of the tribulation, after which Satan is bound and Jesus finally fulfills the Davidic covenant. That covenant promise to David of a throne, a dynasty, and an everlasting kingdom. We'll talk more about that on the next episode. Now, I know this episode was a lot, and some of this may be new for our listeners, but don't think you need to get it all the first time around or even the second time around. In this jog through, we really just want you to get a good sense of the timing and order of events so that you can have a working knowledge for now. We'll go even deeper when we do our walkthrough of the Bible. Join us next time as we finally see Jesus, the anointed Messiah, finally sit on his throne in Jerusalem. Thanks for listening to The Bible Brief. Are you enjoying the podcast? Leave us a five-star review on your podcast app. It will help people discover The Bible Brief and be exposed to the life-changing story and message of the Bible. Thank you for helping us grow. Copyright Bible Literacy Foundation 2022.